0: Uh, Revelation chapter 19, this morning with God's help, we will be considering verses 17 through 19. Uh, excuse me, 17 through 21. 17 through 21. This is the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters, please give it your full attention. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, come, assemble, for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had been, who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is the reading. Bless. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now to the preaching of his word. Let us pray. <clears throat> Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be with us now as we consider your holy eternal word. Give us minds that understand. Give us eyes to see. Ears that hear and hearts that believe. Lord, please give us hands and feet that obey. Let us take heed, Lord, to the judgment that is awaiting those who have taken the mark of the beast. Let us, Lord, uh, stay away from the great supper of God. And while there is still today, accept the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. I become less that you can become more. Dear God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ's name you pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Good morning, brothers and sisters. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the apocalypse of John. Last time when we gathered to consider Revelation, we... Considered the name of God. The name of God as it has been revealed to man through the acts of God. God reveals himself, brothers and sisters, through creation, through covenants, through his word, and supremely through the eternal word who assumed our flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, through these and and various other um, acts of God. Man has attributed anthropologic names to God. Anthropologic meaning names that aren't exactly the name of God, but names that give us a sense of who God is. Through salvation and judgment, God reveals to man that he is faithful and true. That God will keep his word. That he will in fact save the righteous, those who have trusted in Christ, and that he will in fact judge the wicked, of those who have rejected and opposed Christ. And why will he do this? It is in fact because he is faithful and true. Man does not know the name of God as God knows the name of God. We considered that last week. Only God knows God as God. Uh, the Father knows the Son. And only the Son knows the Father. And only the Spirit is able to search the deep things of God and know God. 1 Corinthians 2.10 But we have been given the mind of Christ. So we can therefore know God through His Son. We can have intimacy with the Father, Son and Spirit through Christ who is faithful and true. We are partakers by the grace of God in the divine nature of God. Having escaped corruption through uh, the world or in the world. God has also revealed that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. We talked about last week that John, through the inspiration of the Spirit, sees that heaven and earth are are brought together through, I didn't say this last week, but through Jacob's ladder. That is the Lord Jesus Christ who connects heaven and earth. He is ruler over all kings. All kings who have reigned on earth yesterday, today, and kings who will reign tomorrow should tomorrow come. Christ is ruler over all of them. And he is Lord of heaven. He rules uh, all creatures and over rules over heaven and earth, taking the keys of death and the grave. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And here in these final verses of the 19th chapter, John sees a feast that the wicked must attend. We'll get to that in a moment. It is called the Great Supper of God. The time when God will judge all of His enemies and cast them into the lake of fire, which is eternal hell. This morning, saints, if you uh, are looking for a title with God's help, we shall consider hell, the great supper of God. Hell, the great supper of God. Um, we will do so with just two points this morning. The second point will have subpoints, but our first point is the great supper of God. This is Revelation chapter 19, verse 17 and 19, or through 19. John sees one who rides on a white horse, who is faithful and true, coming to judge and and wage war against the wicked. His eyes are like a blaze of fire, flame of fire. He wears a crown of infinite diadems. His robe is dipped in blood. He comes with the word in his mouth that is sharp as a sword to strike down the nations. He is king of kings and lord of lords, and he is coming to execute judgment. He does not ride alone, as we considered last week. With him are the armies of heaven clothed in linen. And they too, as Christ is riding on a white horse, they also are riding on white horses. They are the saints of all time. Who will join Christ in battle against those who are marked by the beast and his prophets. In verse 17, the angel standing in the sun. That is, he is standing bright as the sun. He is standing with all glory and with all splendor. The angel that is seen by John is most likely the same angel of chapter 18 verse 1. The angel who comes down having great authority... Who fills the earth with his glory. This is probably most likely the same exact angel. Uh, we argued at that time that this is Christ. Notice what Christ is announcing then. He says to all the birds who are flying mid-heaven, come. Assemble for the great supper of God. In Revelation 14, John sees angels flying mid-heaven. These angels who are flying mid-heaven, they are preaching, if you remember, they are preaching... An eternal gospel. We learn that the gospel is not just good news of salvation, but the the gospel is also good news of God's judgment upon the wicked. It is good news. Not good news for the wicked, but it is good news. First and foremost, about God. The gospel, saints, doesn't begin with you or I. The gospel begins with God. God is loving and God is just. And the eternal gospel that is being proclaimed is that God will save those whom He has foreloved and that God will judge those whom He has hated. Uh, Someone might say, hate sounds like a strong word. Well, we need to then deal with Romans 9, don't we? Because He says that Jacob He has um, loved and Esau He has hated. The Lord then now calls all the angels who are flying mid-heaven, making this eternal gospel known to to cease from their fight or to rest from their fight of announcing and now come to this supper of judgment. What is this feast, this this uh, supper of God, <clears throat> the great supper of God? Well, not to be confused with the Lord's Supper. Um, someone might say, there's only one supper in Scriptures. It's, it's the Lord's Supper. Well, we're coming across two other suppers, aren't we? There is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then now John is seeing the Great Supper of God. Well, this supper that John is seeing is not the Lord's Supper, and it also is not the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. The Marriage Supper of the Lamb, we talked about um, a week ago or so, the Lord's Supper is where we celebrate the body and blood of Christ. But this feast is also a celebration. It is a celebration of the judgment of the wicked. All of the feasts are celebrations. The Lord's Supper is a celebration. The um, marriage supper of the Lamb is a celebration. The Great Supper of God is also a celebration. It is a celebration. Not of the body or flesh of Christ being celebrated and feasted upon for salvation. The Great Supper of God is a feast of the flesh, not of Christ, but of kings, of commanders. Mighty men, forces, John even says all men, both free and slaves, small and great. That's paraphrasing. The imagery is drawn from Ezekiel 39. The Lord speaking metaphorically concerning the wicked, he says, I will give you, the wicked, as food to every kind of predatory bird. Speak to the bird of every wing gather yourselves together and come so that you may eat flesh you will eat the flesh of mighty ones and the blood of princes and you will be satisfied at my table the Lord says my table with horses and chariots mighty ones and all the men of war let's pause for a brief second and let's at least be very forthright and honest about this passage it is a horrific passage it is one straight out of a horror film, it sounds like. And, and let's also be honest, it's intended to be horrific. That it, it, if it was pleasant, then no one would fear the judgment of God. It is a horrific scene. This passage and this feast is meant to be contrasted with the feast that we, we uh, considered two weeks ago, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And, and John has been doing this contrast in all of Revelation, hasn't he? There's the contrast between the kingdom of God and Babylon. There is the contrast between the bride and the harlot. Uh, There is the contrast between those who have taken the mark of the beast and those who are sealed by the Spirit. And many other contrasts. Uh, That would be a good side study to do, all the contrasts in Revelation. And now here is yet another contrast. The marriage supper of the Lamb and the great supper of God. In the marriage supper of the Lamb, we learned that, that John is not speaking about a literal marriage, nor a literal supper, but rather drawing from two common experiences of intimacy to give us a sense of this, the sweet, blessed intimacy that we shall have in the fullest sense with Christ in the new creation. I say that we shall have in the fullest sense because we have intimacy with Christ now, don't we? Um, there will come a time when our joy will be complete. When our peace shall be perfected. Um, When our vision of God will be one of perfect blessedness, the beatific vision. The supper is contrasted with the great supper of God. That has been prepared not just for kings. We might look at those who are running the country and say, you're going to get it one day. The supper is prepared for even the, the lowest rank, listen to this, in terms of authority of humanity. Free men, John says. Free men, both slaves and freemen, Small and great. John says that this supper of judgment is not just for those of high-ranking authority. It's even for those who have no authority except over their own lives. And maybe even those who don't have authority over their lives. Even slaves. It's those who oppose Christ. Last week I made the point... That to deny is to oppose. To deny Christ is to oppose Christ. And one does not need to be actively persecuting the church in order to be in opposition to Christ and His church. I hope that 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 makes sense. In fact, it is possible that one could be sitting among other believers, maybe even here and now, uh, God forbid, posing as a believer, and yet denying Christ by their word and deed. And as a result, they will suffer the consequence of judgment in the end. Or, let's say it this way, as a result, they will be at this feast, being feasted upon. How could we say that? The Lord says in Matthew 7.21, On that day, this day, when I say that day, it is that day of the great supper of God, there will be many who, says to, who say to Him, oh, in, a, in a sense, plead with Him, Lord, Lord... Did we not prophesy in your name? They are trying to make themselves justified before, before God. Not based upon, this is important, not based upon what Christ has done, but based upon what they have done. This is of utmost importance. They are making their argument based upon their own deeds. Lord, we have prophesied in your name. We've cast out demons in your name. We've done mighty works in your name. Uh, they are speaking about the things that they have done. Not, not that which Christ has done. And Christ will say to them on that day, I, I never knew you. Depart from me, evildoers. It's funny because they prophesy, they cast out demons, they do many works, and Christ says of their deeds, they are evildoers. The Great Supper of God is not just meant for the Hitlers, the Pol Pots, the Husseins, and, and Genghis Khan's of history. It is meant for those who are hypocrites. It is meant for those who are whitewashed tombs. Who look good on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and all corruptions. Those who have a form of godliness but deny the power of God. Those who capitulate to the flesh and to the world. But pose as if they are true believers. Or, or even if they don't pose as if they're believers at all. But say about themselves, I am a good person they will be feasted upon when the great supper of God arrives, the day of judgment well, let's, let's dig more into this what is the great supper of God well let's, let's consider the contrast if the marriage supper of the Lamb is to communicate supreme blessedness that we shall have, and we do have in the new creation then the great supper of God is meant to be the antithesis of this it's meant to be the opposite of that That is, again, not a literal supper, but it's meant to communicate being brought to the table of God, which is His throne. If we say, what what is His table? It is the throne of God. It is to stand before God, and rather than receiving His grace of pardon, they um, and pronouncement of blessing, they will receive the verdict of guilty and pronouncement of eternal punishment. Let's do it this way. Rather than beholding the face of God and enjoying supreme blessedness, complete joy, perfect peace, they will suffer the agony of this. God's face being turned away from them. We are looking to, to, uh, we are, are longing for the time when we will see God face to face. The wicked, they will actually have the, the opposite result. God's face will not be turned to them, but away from them. brothers and sisters have you ever made someone so mad that they don't even want to look at you? have you ever been in in a discussion maybe with your wife or with a friend and they can't even bear the sight of you I, I, I hope that our parents don't say that to us but I don't even want to see your face parents might say but what they're saying is I don't even want you to see my face do you know the guilt And the pain, I I pray that you don't, but I think we might. The guilt and pain of, of knowing that someone does not even want to see our face. Even worse, that we are not allowed to see theirs. Let's not take this as a small thing, that, that we get to behold the face of God, but those of the wicked don't get to behold the face of God. When you begin to, to consider what it means to behold someone's face, and the friendship that is shared when you get to see their face, the, the, the peace that is between the two of you, when you get to see each other's face, the love that is there when you get to see each other's face, and that which is not there when their face is turned from you. It speaks volumes of what the wicked will experience. Not just for a time, but for eternity without end. They will suffer the pain of God's curse. Unending despair. And let's keep this unending theme. an An unending torment. The Supper of God, dear ones, presents something straight out of a horror film. But brothers and sisters, the symbols that John gives, they don't even come close to the horrific nature of which this great Supper of God is. It sounds horrific. Let me say to you this, it's even worse than it sounds. It's the best that John can do. He he uses this imagery of vultures, of predatory birds coming and feasting upon dead flesh. You've seen that, haven't you? You've driven in in rural areas, and you've seen birds just flock. My brother Isaiah, he he, he marvels at birds, large birds doing things like this. Imagine the 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 sheer horror of seeing... um, Dead flesh being feasted, and listen, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to censor this. Because the, the weight of this sermon needs to be said the way it should be said. The horrific vision of seeing these birds feasting upon flesh, and sometimes not even all the way dead, but dead. And, and there, there is no relenting. Um, there is no mercy from these birds upon those, upon that, that carcass. What John explains does not even come close to how bad it is. What, what we see sometimes on the side of the road is not even as bad as it's going to be. Sometimes we'll see birds flying midair, don't we? we go, oh, they're circling. There is something dead there. And they are preparing themselves to come and feast. John, through those visions, is just giving us a glimpse, a taste of, of what is even worse than it seems. It reminds me of what the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 13:31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It is a it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. John uses the metaphor of birds coming to feast and it is meant to communicate the certainty of God's judgment and the certainty of suffering upon the wicked. It is as sure as a vulture finding dead flesh and feasting upon it, God will judge the wicked. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 24, Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In Revelation 19.9, the angel pronounces a blessing for those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But notice this. There is no blessing for those who find themselves at the great supper of God. Brothers, brothers and sisters, there is not even an, an invitation to the supper. There is an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who have received this invitation. But notice in, in these verses, there is no invitation for those who are at the supper of God. They're not invited. They're the main course. They're the main course. The ones who are invited are the angels in fact. Come. That 's who, who God gives the invitation to to the angels, the, the angels are, are the birds flying mid heaven. Come, let us um, execute judgment. Revelation fourteen, you remember when the angels are called to swing the sickle, to gather the clutches of vine from the earth, to be cast into the wine press, which is the great wrath of God, and what symbolic blood is filling the earth at that particular time? birds flying mid-heaven are the angels who come and they participate in the judgment of God. And what great judgment, what great horror will be for the wicked. It is a terrible thing to to fall into the hands of God. These are the true words of God, John will say. What is the great supper of God? To put it very plainly, moving into our next point, it is hell. The great supper of God is eternal suffering in hell? Second point. This will be the point with um, five subpoints that will be short. Revelation nineteen verses uh, nineteen through twenty-one. <clears throat> Interesting that that John sees the beast and the kings of the earth assembled to make war against Christ and His Church. But the very next scene is not one of bloodshed, uh, at least on the side of the righteous. The very next scene is the beast. And his minions bound and cast into the lake of fire. They are assembling to make war. And the very next scene is not... And they swung swords and some of the righteous died. There is nothing like that. Instead, the very next scene is... The beast and his minions bound. Bound. And we've seen this before. If you're saying, this sounds familiar. It is familiar. Revelation 16.16. Revelation 17.14. John is giving us the defeat of the wicked, once again, recapitulating from a different angle. Here John sees the end or the aftermath of the battle and the judgment of the wicked in the lake of fire hell. This is now the first of four references to the lake of fire that we will see from here on out. The first. The lake of fire manifests, The just wrath of God, inflicting punishment of hell upon the wicked. Last week, sitting with with the saints, a question was asked, Is the lake of fire a literal lake of fire? I was hesitant to answer the question without really kind of looking in in depth into the topic. But this saint reminded me of the rule of revelation. Revelation. If this book is a book of symbols, then the lake of fire must also be symbolic. Ding, ding, ding. You're correct. But let us be clear. The lake of fire is meant to be an analogy, a symbol of hell. Hell is a real place. While the lake of fire may be symbolic, hell is not. The lake of fire may be symbolic... But hell is not. <clears throat> the lake of fire is meant to be a symbol of something far worse than what it symbolizes, or than what, than what it is, than the symbol itself. Consider the image of a lake. We've all seen them, right? Whether you're going to Pyramid Lake or whatever lake you like. This lake is not one of water on fire. It is one of fire. That's important, because when we think of lakes, we can only kind of think of water. Or maybe John's saying, water on fire. No, John is saying, it is a lake of fire. It is itself burning fire. But the symbol of lake of fire is even worse than the symbol. It is meant to communicate the utter horror that awaits those who are cast into it hell John sees the beast and the false prophet being thrown into this eternal torment of fire Lake of fire is meant to symbolize hell and the eternal suffering that awaits those who continue to reject Christ and the grace of God in Christ now in these subpoints I'm doing this for for the simple I'm doing these subpoints for this week, for those who have maybe never heard a teaching on hell. Some of these things that I'm going to say about hell may be things that you might automatically go, Yes, I know that. These will be foundational teachings about, uh, points about hell. Next week we're going to consider objections to these subpoints, which will take us deeper into some of the, the doctrines of hell for now five short subpoints let's do what we just said number 1 or 1 or 2b i'm sorry 2a hell is a real place let's do that hell is a real place <clears throat> just as heaven is a real place so too hell is a real place when Christ returns we will either enjoy eternal blessedness of heaven or eternal despair of hell now let me pause hell is not yet Hell is not yet. And heaven in a sense is also not yet. Um, Someone might go, Do you mean that there is not hell yet? Exactly. And do you mean that there is not exactly um, heaven in the in the new creation sense of the word heaven? Exactly. Those who die, where do they go then? They go to what is known as the intermediate state. The intermediate state. We will be... um, Those who die in Christ... We will be under the altar, as it were... Awaiting the time when God will bring all things to an end... Uniting soul and body. We will have... um, Blessed... The blessed vision of God... Enjoy Him until the resurrection of body and soul will be reunited. Those who die apart from Christ... Well then, where do they go? Uh, They go to... Hades. It is the place of the damned. Now, Hades itself could be Pastor Isaiah taught this um, a while ago. Hades itself could be referred to as the realm of the dead. But there is a place of comfort, Abraham's bosom, and there was a place of discomfort. Um, Luke sixteen, the rich man, he describes it as this fire. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in agony in this in this fire. As a matter of fact, Luke 16, not parable, but story. And some believe that Christ is telling a true story of the rich man and Lazarus, is a good place that describes the intermediate state. If you're wondering, what is that place like now where people go? Well, there was a place of comfort, and there was a place of suffering, and Christ does, I think, obviously, the perfect job of explaining what that is like in Luke 16. So, am I saying that no one is in hell right now? Yes. No one is in hell right now. But to be in the, to, but to be apart from uh, the place of comfort is to be in agony, which could be also called hell, even though it is not properly yet hell. The final judgment. You with me? Upon the resurrection, the righteous will enjoy the new heaven and new earth, which is essentially heaven. It's the new creation. Heaven and earth are brought together. The wicked will suffer the pains of hell. Let's go back to our point. Hell is a real place. Um, I wonder, where is hell? If hell is a real place, where is it? Maybe you're growing up like me and and you were taught that if you just keep digging, you will eventually... um, uh, There was a, a program called TBN, which I do not recommend... That said that the, the further that you dig into the, into the earth, you'll start to hear screams. <sighs> we will most likely deal with this question next week in depth. But let's, let's pause for a second and then get back to it. The body and soul will be reunited and they will enjoy a true physical new creation that will be heaven. We shall be in the presence of God in the fullest sense. <clears throat> Hell will also be a physical place, which we're talking about location, where the body and soul together will suffer for eternity. We're going to deal with this more next week, but for now, in terms of location, hell is most likely not in the center or core of the earth, as some have hypothesized. I'm going to say most likely, because I could be wrong. I don't think I am, though. Um, we'll talk about next week when Christ says that he'll be in, in, the, in the belly of the earth speaking about his, his death and where he is at that particular time that's where people draw the idea that, that hell's in the middle of the earth from Christ saying that, that when he dies he will go to the belly or to the middle of the earth essentially, we'll talk about that next week it's not a place that you can dig and dig and dig and finally get to even the hottest place in the core of the earth cannot compare to the fires of hell where will it be? If it is not yet, where will it be? I don't, I don't really know actually. We'll talk more about what it's not next week, but I, but where it is, I don't know. We'll figure that out next week I think. But as for right now, I don't have the answer. I do know this. Jesus compares hell to the valley of Hinnom, near Jerusalem, which is also called the valley of Gehenna. You probably have heard that before. Gehenna was a huge public rubbish dump where bodies were sent, yes, but but mostly trash burned in a continual fire. Christ takes the, the reality of Gehenna and says, hell is like that, but worse. Hell is like that, but worse. It's where the worm never dies because of constantly decomposing things, And where the fire that continued to burn the trash never goes out. The Lord would speak so often about hell that in fact um, we could say, Why would the Lord speak so often about hell if the place exactly if the place did not exactly exist? Hell is a real place. There are many who would like to dismiss the reality of hell and even argue that God, we'll talk about this next week, that a loving God would not be loving if He both created us and then sent us to hell for an eternity to suffer for an eternity. We'll talk about that more next week. I would argue very briefly that God is loving and because He is love, He must punish the wicked and hell is a manifestation of His great love for His holiness. Hell is a real place. We'll talk about that more next week. Secondly, or... Uh, 2B 2 sub point B hell is experienced by the whole person hell is experienced by the whole person some may mistakenly believe that hell is only for your spirit or, or soul or mind and, and not for your body one of the reasons why some of us have come to that conclusion is because we see a body when, it, when a person dies we see a body being lowered into a grave and, and we make this eternal separation between that which is in the grave and that which has gone somewhere else. And don't make the connection that Christ has promised to raise that which has gone into the grave, just as He was raised with that which has gone somewhere else. What am I saying? I'm saying this. Those who are presently suffering in the, the suffering of Hades and, and the place of the damned, They are right now suffering by way of their soul. But the scriptures teach, listen to this word, that all will be raised. All will be raised. Those who have repented and trusted in Christ and those who have not repented and trusted in Christ. And all of them, body and soul, will be cast either into heaven or into hell. We are all awaiting a, a bodily resurrection, those who have gone, to be joined to our souls. And in, in that day, the day of Christ's return, we will go to one of two places. The resurrection though, this is important for us, it's not just for the believer, it is also for the unbeliever. John 5, 28, The hour is coming, an hour is coming, Christ says, in which all who are entombed shall hear His voice, and shall... He says all shall come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Raised to be judged. Acts 24.15 There shall certainly be a resurrection of both righteous and the wicked. In this resurrection, the whole person is raised. If their faith is in Christ... And they shall be raised to enjoy Christ forever. If they have rejected the free offer of the gospel, they shall be raised to eternal torment. Two times in Matthew 5.29, Jesus speaks of the whole body of an unbeliever being cast into hell. Or the whole person being cast into hell. In Matthew chapter 10, He says, Don't be afraid of those who can kill your body but who are unable to kill your soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Christ is speaking of the resurrection. The whole person shall enjoy Christ and the new creation, or the whole person shall suffer the penalty of hell for eternity. The one who sins does not just sin in their soul, do we? You don't make just sins of the soul. You don't just have thoughts of sin that are sinful you also have deeds that are done in the flesh that are rooted in the the sin of the soul that the soul will animate the body to do sinful things and because of this both shall suffer body and soul in hell um, sub so point C 2C hell is suffering This is the most obvious point. I think if anyone wants to talk about, if if you would ask anyone, tell me something about hell. Well, it's hot and it's not pleasant, right? This is probably the most obvious of the points about hell. Let's go further though. Hell is where no sin is forgiven. Hell is where no cross of Christ is offered. Hell is where worldly sorrow looms for eternity. I say worldly sorrow. Paul makes the point in 2 Corinthians 7.10 the distinction between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. In hell, the wicked will suffer worldly sorrow. But it won't be a godly sorrow because godly sorrow leads to repentance. There is no repentance in hell. Godly sorrow leads to repentance which is a gift. That gift will not be offered in hell. It is suffering. Imagine um, committing a sin and never being told you are forgiven for it. Some of us have loved ones who have gone to the graves and, and we would like to hear from them, I'm sorry, and, and for us to say to them, you are forgiven, or vice versa. And some of us live with that regret even now. I never got to say to them this, that will never be offered to you in hell. You who are going Those, those who are going to hell. There is no repentance or forgiveness in hell. In hell, the wicked will suffer the pain of the justice of God without end. Hell is not the absence of the presence of God either. David said in reference to the presence of God, Where shall I go to flee from your presence? If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Psalm 139 There is no place where God is not. He is in fact omnipresent. We know this. God is also present in hell. Doing what? He is upholding His justice through punishment of the wicked, which is a manifestation of His holiness. Even God is present in hell, upholding His justice. The just punishment of God is described by Christ in Luke 16.23 as torment. And in verse 25 of that same chapter as anguish. Um, let's all take a a brief moment to listen to this Mark 9.23 a place of unquenchable fire meaning fire that does not go away Mark 9.48 a place where the worm does not die the worm will continually uh, be decomposing something but the thing that that it is decomposing will never fully ever finally decompose it will be gnawed on and gnawed on for eternity without be, without decomposing. We're gonna to get to that point in a moment. Matthew 13, 42. It is a place where people gnash their teeth in anguish, anger, and sorrow. If you, you might hear that word gnash a lot. What does it mean to gnash? Uh, have you ever hurt yourself in such a way that you could only grit down on your on your teeth and uh, gnash your teeth. It, it will be a place of, of unending gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 30. It's a place of outer darkness. If being near to God is light, being away from God is darkness. Matthew 23:33. It is a place of condemnation. Matthew thirteen forty it is a place where there will be weeping in an unending fashion. To put some of these things in perspective, little ones, can you remember a time when, when something didn't hurt you physically, but hurt you in your heart? And you cried because your feelings were hurt. That feeling for those who go to hell will never end. Loved ones, saints, have you ever had a broken heart? And you felt as though the sun would never come up and that it would be dark and night time forever. And you cried. And you cried in such a way that even, even the tear guts would not produce any more tears. It will be that without end. It is a place preserved, Matthew 25, for Satan and his angels. But those who follow the same prideful rebellion of Satan will show that they are children of the devil and will join him in his, in his eternal place. Aquinas will say that the, that the worm that never dies is this also remorse of sin. Remorse of, of conscience, Re, not remorse of sin, Re, remorse of conscience, and yes, sin, remorse of the things that have been done in the flesh that originate from, from the corruption of sin. It'll be a torment of soul as a corporeal worm born of corruption torments by gnawing. It just, it just continues to gnaw and gnaw, but doesn't stop. I hope this is heavy. I hope this is, is, is not enjoyable. Jesus also compared hell to a prison listen to this a prison that is in outer darkness he likened hell to a fire at least 20 times in the gospels it's important to reiterate that the descriptions of hell are meant to communicate something far worse than they actually are we go gosh that, that doesn't seem pleasant doesn't seem like, like Jimi Hendrix and Tupac are having a party down there they're not the real, it's not a place where, where all of the old time rock and roll legends will get together and just have a jam, a jam, a jam session. It's not a place where, where debauchery, drunkenness, and fornication can be enjoyed. Well, I'll just go to hell and have a party there. On the contrary, they will suffer the end of God's mercy. Here's also this. They will suffer the end of God's allowing them to enjoy the joys of life uninhibited. Their party will then come to an end. Hell is a place of utter hopelessness and suffering without end. Uh, sub point D4, and then we've got one more. It will last for eternity. The Lord Jesus said that the body and soul are destroyed in hell. Um, this does not mean that the person will cease to exist. That's called annihilationism, which we reject. That, that, means, that means the person just simply it ceases to exist altogether. Not, not in the least. Second like Thessalonians 1.9, Paul refers to the punishment of eternal destruction, but does not mean that the person will be destroyed in that they will not exist any longer, but that they will continually, in an ongoing way, be destroyed. Suffer the Lord refers to it the unending torment of hell the unquenchable fire of hell the, the, the place where the fire does not go out where the worm does not die Isaiah quoting Isaiah 66 I mean Christ quoting Isaiah 66 the idea of the worm never, never I said this already never 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 consuming is that he, he eats right and does so for eternity remember Revelation 14 14 the smoke of torment goes up forever and ever upon the wicked they know no rest day and night and those who worship the beast and his image who receive the mark of his name will suffer this punishment forever there is no ending to the suffering of hell let me also say this there is also no escaping hell you won't be able to be careful when I say you Okay, I don't mean you the person who goes to hell will not be able to find the secret um, exit door of hell there is not one there is not one. There is no good deed that can be done for those who are in hell to get them out of hell. That's that's the purgatory or the, the, the place of waiting awaiting judgment that the Roman Catholics believe is now. That, that, that we can somehow pray them out, do good deeds to help them to get out. That is heresy. In hell... All things are done. Um, in Luke 16, the rich man wants to tell Abraham to go and tell his brothers about this place of torment, so that they don't come here. Abraham says, "I'm, I'm not going to do that." Well, then, well, he says, "Send Lazarus. Not going to do that. S-s-s- send someone." Abraham says they have the law and the prophets if they don't believe them neither will they believe if someone comes back from the dead the scriptures are are, are right now sufficient to help you to see that Christ is the way to escape this place of judgment and if you don't believe Christ now there will be no opportunity for you to believe him then I'm speaking to mostly parents as I'm looking around I believe you're all believers you might want to nudge your children after service and say let's talk But let's talk a little bit about this. Because hell is compared to a prison. I I began, by the grace of God, prison ministry with my father who who discipled me. And I met a lot of people who were in prison for life. I met more than I actually could count. They were decent people. Some of them I I, I liked more than, than others. Here's something that was interesting to me that the person who was serving life could actually be productive in prison. They have virtually no chance of ever getting out of out of prison. Some of them committed the crime when they were 17, 18 years old and when I had met them, they were in their 40s, 50s. Some of them were in the twilight of their years. They were never going to get out and yet, they become productive human beings while serving life in prison. Here's what we know about those who have served life, who are serving life and who have served life in prison. They, they can write books and have. Uh, they could go on and get an, a good education. Uh, they could become a minister of any religion in prison. They could be a lawyer or, or a doctor in the field of education in prison. In fact, in prison, those things will be paid for by the government so that they can earn these different. Um, Degrees of education. Even though they're in prison for life, for a bad choice they've made, they're making the best out of it. Nothing like that happens in hell. Not only is there no escape, there's no productivity. Someone won't be in hell and go, "Up, oh, let's just make the best of it." <laughs> There's no making the best of it in hell. There's no. Let's look on the brighter side of things. You know how we all sometimes do when when things don't work out in life the way that we want them to. We go, well, let's see the brighter side of it. There is no brighter side of it. There is no chance in hell. Of someone to. I, I don't mean. I don't mean that as a pun. That actually came out the way it sounded. There is no chance in hell for someone to make something out of themselves. There's only regret. Without end. There's no counselor there to see, to, to help you see the error of your way so that you can rehabilitate and, 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 and maybe make parole. It is what it is for eternity without end. There is no escape. There is no party. There's no crew that you can belong to in order to protect yourself. All will be judged who reject Christ and they will suffer for an eternity. Next week we'll, we'll talk about the degrees of suffering in hell. But finally, um, sub-point so E, hell is for the unrepentant, dear ones. It's for the unrepentant. So that when I said you should have a talk with your kids, here's what you should talk to them about. No man knows the day or the hour when, when Christ will return. And those who have placed their faith in Christ will enjoy Christ forever. And those who reject Christ, who are indifferent to Christ, those who even may attend church, whether they want to or not, those things don't save you. Christ alone can save you. Place your faith in Christ alone. And and do what? And escape... The coming judgment of hell. Those who refuse this gift of God in Christ, those who are indifferent to the message of the gospel of the good news of Christ, they will suffer in eternity in hell. Believe this message. That God has so loved the world, has, has loved the world in this way, that He has provided for the world a Savior. Savior from what? Well, Savior from God. Not just a Savior from hell, but a Savior from the one who is God over all creation and a Savior from, from God's judgment that is coming upon the wicked. Yeah. It is hell meant for Satan and his, his minions, his angels. Yeah. But if you reject Christ and you show that you, are, that you belong to Satan, do you? I pray that your children would say, no, I don't. Yeah. I pray that you would say, no, I don't. I, I belong to Christ. Do they know things perfectly? Will they, able, will they be able to tell you um, the deepest things of God? No. Not yet. But as long as they understand this, you can't save yourself, son. You can't save yourself, daughter. Only Christ can save you. Trust in Christ. Believe in Him. And be rescued from the coming judgment of God. Amen. 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 The time of salvation is today. If you hear His voice today, whether you be the oldest in here or the youngest in here, if you hear His voice today, do not harden your heart. Turn to Him in faith. Turn to Him and believe. Don't be like those... And and listen, young person, look at me for a second. You You might not believe this, but I was your age at one time. And here's what I believed when I was your age. When I get my dad's age and mom's age, then I'll start living seriously for Christ. Don't be a fool. Don't think you have time. Because no one knows when Christ will return. No one. And no one knows, my son can tell you, he hates it, but my son can tell you, we've been in two car accidents, hit them behind. One slight, the next rough. The next one, God forbid it, could be the end of both of us. Or the end of you. And we'll... Listen, it's a reality. I've been in more car accidents in my life than I'd like to imagine. Or that I'd like to remember, I should say. Why did God spare me or you? Why? It is so that we might be reminded of His grace but that we might also be vigilant in sharing this good gospel news. The horrors that we have just heard this morning should cause you and I to say, Whoa, I need to be more faithful in sharing the gospel of my loved ones. I don't want them to go there. There is no life outside of Christ. Don't say, well, I want to live a little. There's no life outside of Christ. This is true living. When you come to Christ, then you will know what it really means to live. Amen. I'm not ready. I don't know about that church. I don't know about that pastor. You better figure it out. That's right. And you better do so quickly.
1: Yes.
0: If not this one, somewhere. That's right. Figure it out. You don't have time to play around. That's right. That's right. I was 10. It seemed just like yesterday. I'm nearing 43 The next time I blink my eyes, I'll be 53. There is no life outside of Christ. And here's the good thing for for you who have trusted in Christ. You don't have... All the stuff that I just described, you don't got to be afraid of it. It shouldn't scare you. You shouldn't walk out of here and go, I'm scared of... I don't know what's going to happen to me. Have you trusted in Christ? If, if there is any fear in you, remind yourself, I have trusted in Christ, and I know this, the perfect love of Christ cast out all my fears. Amen. I don't need to be afraid of hell. I'm not scared of it. I've trusted not in myself, I've trusted in Christ. But I'm not living as perfect as I should. Remember, Christ has been perfect on your behalf. It is His gift of love. His, His gift of love is His life, His death, His resurrection, His descent, and His ascension. He has paid it all. Amen. This should be cause uh, cause us to remind us that 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 not only is is hell real, but heaven is also real. And because I've placed my faith in Him, that's where I'll be. And if you're unsure, then remind yourself again of who Christ is, what Christ has done. Renew your faith in Him again. Reject the one who is trying to allure you away from Christ, to lure you away from Christ, I should say. Turn to Christ, who saved us from judgment. And you will enjoy an eternity with Christ forever. To God be the glory. Let's pray.